How great it is to uh, sing of the Lord's promises and worship Him. For those of you who may not recognize me, my name's Jackson Kramer, and uh, several have asked about the new fuzz on my face. Best way to explain it, I think, is I ran into David Roper recently, and he asked about it, and I, uh, I, I said, well, David, you know, a student will be in all ways like his teacher. So I think this is a good start. I just need to take a little from up here and put it here, and I'll about have it made, right? <laughs> Let's uh, pray as we look into God's Word. Thank you, Father, for these promises we've heard, the faithfulness we've sung about, the marvelous character of who you are. Lord, may, uh, may your Word now shine forth in a way that would cause us to deepen our faith our trust in you in the midst of all that we go through. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Well, for the last number of weeks, we've been going through a series on the minor prophets. And you've heard over and over again, as we've looked at a number of those, how God was calling his people to several things, to righteousness, to trust him, even though many of them were were rebellious and going through difficult times. And there were many promises that someday God would restore the people and bring Messiah, the chosen one who would come. In fact, we ended last week. Chris uh, Rudell taught the end of Malachi, which was the last of the minor prophets, the last of the whole Old Testament to be written. And the final words of Malachi were these. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. God says, I don't want to curse the land, so I will send one in the spirit of Elijah who will prepare the way for Messiah to come. Well, the Jews then began to pray began to wait, looking for Messiah to come. Those words were written about 430 B.C. For a hundred years, they were dominated by the Persians. Then the Greeks took over. They dominated the Jews in Israel for the next 160 years. Finally, there was a rebellion, and the Jews gained independence in the land of Israel. But it turned out those who began to rule over them weren't any better than the Greeks. And they oppressed the true believers just as much as those who had come before them. Finally, in 63 B.C., the Romans came in, wiped out the nation of Israel, and took it over. So, the setting then for the beginning of the gospel, when God began to move again, was that the Jews had been praying for 430 years. Years. They're called the silent years sometimes because there's no special revelation from God. None of the scriptures were written during that time. A time of real waiting. The promise of Messiah was in hand, but where was he? Lord, where are you? Well, today we are starting a series in the Gospel of Luke. I think it'll be a wonderful study. That Luke is a book that uh, gives us a portrait, a picture of who Jesus was that I think is exciting. It's one of the most thrilling... Go- I like all the Gospels, of course, but it's an exciting, unique picture. 
written by Luke. We don't know a lot about Luke. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament by name. In the book of Acts, several times there's some we passages. So you can see he was traveling with Paul. But basically, we don't know a lot. Paul does say in Colossians 4, he describes Luke as the beloved physician. So Luke, we know, was a doctor. And when you know that and you begin reading the Gospel of Luke and you begin to see his descriptions of people and of diseases and of the healing that Jesus did, you begin to see the physician's touch, the physician's mind as he describes different details. Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else, more than Paul wrote, more than John wrote, because he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts as a grand history of how God began to invade history at a time when the Jews were waiting and wondering where God was. Some special things that are unique about the Gospel of Luke that we'll see as we go through in the next number of months include, one, Luke gives a description and a picture of Jesus, a portrait of him, as one who is especially compassionate upon those who are needy upon those that society rejects. You see, in first century Israel, women, children, sinners, Samaritans, Gentiles, all those were despised by the Jews. But the portrait that Luke paints is one in which Jesus is reaching out to all those people in special, unique ways and exalting women, exalting children, exalting People like the despised Samaritans. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Not only is the Samaritan shown mercy, he's actually the hero in the story. That must have blown the mind of some of those Jews in the first century. So it's a picture of God as one who cares for those that the world rejects and offers salvation to everybody. No one's excluded if you will only believe. What a wonderful picture of our God. We'll see that as we go on. Another unique uh, picture that, that Luke gives us is that he gives a lot of historical detail. He's not only a doctor, but he's an historian. And Luke wants to make sure that our faith is firmly grounded in history, that we know that it's true, the gospel is true, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is true. So there's a lot of historical detail. There's a great emphasis in the gospel of Luke on prayer, more than any of the other gospels. Constantly you see Jesus going off to pray by himself to his heavenly Father. Constantly you see him teach parables about prayer and how to approach the throne of grace. So we'll learn a lot about prayer as we study this gospel. And then finally, and there's others, but these are just some key ones. Finally, there's a great emphasis in this book, the Gospel of Luke, on the fact that God is always working out his plan. He may have waited 430 years to invade history again, but it's all part of his plan. And the times when we are left to wait, wondering, where are you, God? Why won't you act? It's just all part of his grand plan. So that's one of the wonderful themes we'll see as we go through the book of Luke. And this morning, we will especially emphasize that last point as we look at the first 25 verses of 
the Gospel of Luke. So if you're not there already, turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll look there. God is working out his plan. Now, like the Jews, all of us at times in our lives go through periods where we wonder, where are you, God? I've been praying for this for so long. Where are you? Why are you silent? Why are the heavens like brass and my prayers never seem to get through? Where are you, God? Ben Patterson is coming in a month to Cole to uh, teach an IMM conference. And in his book, Waiting, he describes his experience with waiting. I winced in pain as I looked at my bloodied knuckles. In a rage, I had slammed my fist into the dashboard of my Volkswagen as I drove home from our last date together. Five years, I screamed into the headlining of the automobile. That's how long I had dated her, waiting and hoping that one day we would be married. Now it was over. Nothing was working as it should. God had reneged on the contract. I had been a faithful Christian, a good student, a hard worker. I was upstanding, moral, and sincere. I had loved her long and well. But none of that got me the girl of my dreams. I had kept all the rules. I had held up my end of the bargain. Why hadn't he? I had waited for so long, and now I'd have to wait some more. Don't we all go through times where we feel that way? God, I've waited for you. I've tried to do what's right. Why am I going through a time of waiting, of struggle, of difficulty, of barrenness? Why does my life seem to be one in which you never seem to come through like I want you to, God? Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest theologians of our century, was asked as he lay dying of cancer, how do you handle the fact that thousands of people are praying for your recovery and yet you're not getting any better and you're near death. He thought for a moment and he answered, well, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to face in my life. But he said, God is the commander-in-chief and it's unbecoming of me to demand anything of him. He's the commander-in-chief, and it's unbecoming of me to demand anything of him. He died shortly thereafter. You see, he had to struggle with the fact that God doesn't always answer our prayers. God doesn't always give us what we would like, what we ask for. How about you? Do you feel barren at times? Barren in the sense of it's like a desert, and you pray, and God doesn't seem to answer, and you wonder where he is? Maybe some of you, like Ben Patterson, have longed for a mate, have prayed for a mate for years. You've tried to do what's right, to be a godly man or woman, and yet God never seems to answer. Or maybe for you, you've got a mate, and the struggle of trying to become one is so great, and you pray and say, Lord, why is it so hard? Why is my marriage such a struggle. Maybe for you, you have children that are going through difficult times and you've prayed and prayed and prayed they'd come back to the Lord and yet they don't. 
Maybe for you, you've had financial struggles. Always trying to make ends meet, and sometimes you can't. You get behind on your bills, and you wonder, God, I've prayed and prayed, and I've tried to seek you. Where are you? Where are you? Well, I could go on and on. We could give all kinds of descriptions, but every one of us has our own version of the barrenness that life sometimes brings. You see, we live in a world that has fallen, and therefore we all experience those kinds of times where God just never seems to come through. Life is like a desert. Life is like a struggle. And we wait, and we wait, like the Jews who had waited for 430 years. The question this morning, then, is how can we face those kinds of times in a way that will cause our faith to be strong, that will allow us to cling with faith and confidence to the promises that we've heard about and sung about this morning. How can we have that kind of strong faith? I think the passage today, the first 25 verses of Luke, give us two truths that we can hang on to that can be an anchor for our soul as we go through those times of waiting and wondering. So beginning in, uh, I want to read first the first four verses and we'll see the first great truth that I believe Luke gives us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Luke begins the introduction to his Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. This is the introduction for both by saying, many of have sought to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, or the word could be fulfilled among us. You see, I think in this introduction, what Luke is telling us, the truth we can hang on to is that the Gospel, the message, the story and I don't mean story as in fiction, but story as in the life of Jesus described in the Gospels is true. The Gospel story is true. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you is true. And he says why we can have confidence that it is true. First of all, he says it's the things fulfilled among us. That word fulfilled really is a word that's used to describe the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of a plan. It's as though God has designed this whole plan and he's just filling it out. He's just completing the blueprints that he's already laid out in the universe, in history. And Luke says, what, it, what was accomplished, what was fulfilled in the life of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection, and the beginnings of the church was just what God was doing all along. It's all part of his plan. What's going on in your life now is all part of God's plan. You may not understand what he's doing in your life, but it's all part of his plan because God is faithful to accomplish his purposes and he's working out his plan of redemption in the universe and in your life. We can have confidence that he'll complete that plan 
Verse 2, Luke says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants. In other words, he's saying, you can trust in the gospel story because it's based on reliable witnesses. He wrote this in about 61 or so A.D. Well, Jesus had died about 30 or so A.D. Therefore, it had only been 30 years or so, which meant that many of the people who had been involved, who were eyewitnesses, who had seen Jesus, were still alive. Luke had researched through them the truth. He understood, and it would have been easy to refute the evidence that he wrote down because they were still alive, if it was false. But he's saying, no, it's true. Thirdly, he says in verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything. In other words, the gospel story as we see it in Luke and in all the gospels, but in particularly Luke, is based on careful research. We know it's true because he says, I carefully researched it. It's historical fact. You see, the gospel really happened in history. And why is this so important? Well, because many of us as believers, and I do this too, begin to base our Christian life on our experience, on our feelings, on how our circumstances seem to be. If things are going well, then God's got his favor on me and he must love me and think, and things are all right. When things aren't going so well in my circumstances or I don't feel loved by God, then he must not love me. But what Luke is trying to encourage us to do is base our faith not on those things, not on our experience, not on circumstances, but rather on the truth, historical truth of the gospel. Notice verse 4, so that, I've written all of this, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. That word exact truth, it's translated in the NIV certainty, the certainty of those things. It's the Greek word asphaleia, where we get our English word asphalt. In other words, he says, I want you to know the exact certainty, the confidence you can have in the gospel. That's why I wrote it all out the way I did. That's why whatever comes into your life, you can trust in the truth of the gospel and know that God loves you based on his life, death, and resurrection. He died for you. So no matter what happens in your life, you can know he loves you because of the historical truth of the gospel. Now, there's been questions at times about the Gospels and and the fact that there's four Gospels. None of them are quite the same. There's places where they seem to contradict. And you say, well, how can I trust in the historical fact if they seem to contradict? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that. Um, but I really appreciate the an article by Edmund Bennett, who's a late the late dean of the Boston University School of Law. He wrote the four Gospels from a lawyer's standpoint. And he said if somebody was trying to manufacture a false story about Jesus, they wouldn't have left all the seeming discrepancies and paradoxes that are in the four Gospels. You see, they would have made them all fit exactly so that everyone would think they're the same exact story. He says the discrepancies or apparent discrepancies that he answers, by the way, are actual proof that these are eyewitness accounts. 
He says, from a lawyer's point of view, if you get four people on the stand that have all seen the same event, they will all describe it very differently. Why? Because we all look at things from our own perspective. And the differences in the Gospels are actually proof that these are accurate historical eyewitness accounts. Beyond that, we have nearly 10,000 manuscripts to prove it. Well, I could go on, but let me just suggest to you, if you're interested in, in seeing the proofs for what we believe, there will be a class, adult class starting in about a month. Bob Bishop will teach it on apologetics if you want to pursue it further. But Luke is going out of his way to say you can count on the asphalt, on the truth of the gospel. It is firm. It's paved the way so no matter what you're walking through in life, you have something to stand on. The historical truth of the gospel you can stand on. I took a lot of psychology in in, uh, college, and one of the experiments I remember in child development described how they took infants and they put them on the floor and then they built a, a plexiglass solid but clear floor and then a drop of about two or three feet under that. And they described how infants, when they were small and beginning to crawl, they would, they would crawl up to the edge and they would not crawl out on the plexiglass until they reached a certain stage of development where they could begin to trust other senses than just their sight. And as they learned to trust more than just their sight, they would begin to feel their way out and crawl out on the plexiglass, even though it looked like there was a drop-off there. You see, God is trying to develop in each one of us a kind of faith that will step out on the truth of the gospel, even when it doesn't look like God's even there. Even when you can't see him at work in your life. He wants us to learn to crawl out and trust that solid foundation that he has given to us in his promises and in his word. God wants, longs for us to trust him and put our foundation on him and his word, the truth of the gospel, and not on what we see. So the first truth Luke has given us, the gospel is true. When you're struggling with the barrenness of life, the things that make you feel like God isn't there, go back to the gospel. Go back to the truth of the scriptures that Jesus came, he lived, he died for you and rose again. So you have a foundation for your faith. The second truth that can help us through those difficult times It's given in the next 21 verses, 5 through 25. Let me give you the truth now and we'll develop it. Despite how things look, God is working out his plan. Despite how things look, God is still fulfilling his purpose, working out his plan in your life, in all of history. And that's a truth that we can hang on to as we see Luke brings that out in these next few verses. He begins the story of Jesus by describing the birth of John the Baptist. And in 5 through 7, he says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Luke sets his gospel at the time of Herod. Herod was that wicked king. You remember that when Jesus, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem, Herod came in and had all the infants in the vicinity killed because he was afraid of the competition. Herod was one that the Jews hated because he was really a puppet of the Romans. So that's the context in which God begins to move and invade the universe again after 430 years of people waiting. So that's the context historically. And God comes to a certain priest named Zechariah. And what we know immediately about Zechariah and Elizabeth from verse 6 is that they were both righteous and blameless, it says, in the sight of God. Not just that they were blameless in the sight of people, but there's a clear description here that they had God's favor, that God was for them. They were righteous in his sight. But then you get verse 7, and they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And they were old, too old to have kids by this point. Find out later in verse 13 that Zechariah has been praying for years for a child, and God has not answered. One of those barren times of waiting and waiting and praying, and God never seems to respond. And see, what's important, I think, is to realize in their day, somewhat today we have this sense, but far more in their day, if you were barren, could not have a child, it was obvious that God must be angry with you. That's the way the Jews looked at it for several reasons, one of which is that God had called the Jews to be fruitful and multiply. And if he didn't bring fruitfulness into your life, it must be because there's sin in your life somewhere. That was the attitude of the people of the day. If there's something wrong in your life, it must be because there's sin that's unconfessed, undealt with, untaken, not taken care of. But also... For a woman, that's where she could find her main fulfillment was in raising children. What else could she do in that society? Not much. And then lastly, every baby that was born to a Jewish woman was potentially the Messiah. And so for a woman not even be able to give birth at all meant that she was out of that possibility of being part of the godly line and bringing the Messiah into the world. So there was tremendous disgrace for being barren. And though the people in the society were saying, you must have sin in your life, Luke clearly states in verse 6 that that's not true. That is not true. But you know, we tend to have that kind of attitude, don't we? Like the first century Jews sometimes. If somebody's going through a really hard time, don't we sometimes get a little judgmental and think, well, they must be pretty hard-hearted. God's having to bring all this into their lives to, to break them. Or we think about ourselves. Why am I going through such a hard time? Is God punishing me? What's wrong with me that God is bringing this into my life? But in this case, the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah 
their barrenness was not because they were sinful. It was because God had his hand on them and was going to do something far greater than they could have imagined or even thought of. And when you begin to realize that and begin looking back in the Old Testament and see how God tends to work in our lives, in people's lives, you'll see that over and over again that God was using difficult circumstances to do something far greater, to bring glory to himself and to fulfill his greater plan than we could have ever imagined. Think about just the topic of barrenness, not having a child. Abraham and Sarah, they waited till far past the childbearing years to be able to have a child, and God finally came and said, you will have a child. Even though he'd made promises long before that that they would have descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Rebecca was barren for many years. Rachel was barren. Think of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 1 where she prayed to God for a child and was barren for so long. You see, the fact that you have difficulty and barrenness in your life is not a sign that somehow God's against you. God's not for you at all. God is doing something far greater, working out his purposes in your life than you can imagine. It's not because you're sinful and he's punishing you. It's because he's chosen you to go through the difficulty because he has a far greater plan for you than you can even imagine. You know the story in John chapter 9 about the blind man? Remember what, uh, let me read that to you. Just a reminder of how the disciples were thinking and how God, how Jesus responds. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. But it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, the struggles we go through are so that God might display his works in us. I don't know how. I don't know exactly how he's going to work that out for you or for me. But the barren times are because he wants to display his works, his glory, in you. Look what he begins to do now, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read 8 through 15. He says, Now it came about, and listen to this wonderful story. Now it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John." And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine nor liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
So God steps back into history and comes to a man named Zechariah. I like that name. Zechariah means God remembers. 430 years the Jews had been waiting. God in his wisdom comes to a man named God remembers to say, I have not forgotten you. No matter what you're going through, I have not forgotten you. I am still working out my plan. Nothing can thwart my purposes. I remember you. And in this story, he comes and the, uh, and the angel speaks to him. And Zechariah was chosen by lot to go in to burn incense in the temple. Now, a priest could only be chosen once in his lifetime ever to go in there. And many priests never were chosen at all. But God so worked in his sovereignty to bring Zechariah into the temple. Everybody's praying outside. As he went in to burn incense, the angel appears and speaks to him and says, you will bear a son and he will be great. And just a side note here, it says he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. What a marvelous passage to, to point out the, the fact that the infants, even in their womb, in a day when abortion is so common, are specially chosen by God. Here is John, who was anointed by God, by the Holy Spirit, and chosen by God, while yet in his mother's womb. It's a great picture of, of how God has knit them together, and, uh, and they're obviously humans, even in the womb. So John is amazed. He's afraid. The angel comes. And then, listen to what the ministry of this John would be. John the Baptist, verse 16 and 17. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, comes to Zechariah and quotes the end of Malachi. It's a quote of the passage that was the last words that God gave the people of Israel 430 years earlier. Now he comes and says, now I am fulfilling exactly what I promised. You never know why God waits so long sometimes to fulfill his promises in your life. But he always fulfills his promises. He is faithful, as we sung about recently, a few minutes ago. He is faithful. And he describes what the ministry of Elijah will be, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the heart and the dis- disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. You know, today we live in a time when people are so dependent on feelings, emotionalism, and they think the moving of God, if God's really with me, I will feel something incredible. And today we have the Toronto blessing and other kind of experiential times, and I can't judge someone else's experience. But what I see in the scriptures, and particularly here, is that when God is really moving amongst his people, the primary evidence of that is that God begins to change hearts. God begins to heal families. 
God begins to take fathers and help them to love their wives and loves their children as he's called them to. God begins to take disobedient people and change them to people that are seeking righteousness, seeking to obey, seeking to display the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the true evidence that God, through his Holy Spirit, is working in people's lives. So let's remember that. And so he says that's what John will do. That will be his ministry. Now listen to Zechariah's response in 18 and following. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now Zechariah had been praying for years. We were just told for a baby. And now he's promised one and he says, Wait a minute, how can this be? And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. So Zechariah, even though he was a godly man, blameless in the sight of God, he'd been praying to God. When it came right down to it, he didn't trust God any more than you and I do. We struggle with that. We struggle with putting our faith in God and really believing he's there. But that doesn't stop God from working. God continues to work in spite of his unbelief. Now, God wants to teach him a little lesson, so he gives him an extended nine-month quiet time to just consider his, uh, his love and uh, his promises. Give him time to think about it. But I also think he made him mute because he wanted to make clear to all the Jews, the multitude gathered there, that God was now working. He was stepping back into history, and you better pay attention to this child that was about to be born. You see, the normal routine was a priest would go in and burn incense and come immediately out. All the people would be gathered where they'd been praying, and he'd give a blessing on all the people. But John came out, and he couldn't speak, and all the people were wondering what was going on, and he had to make hand motions and help them to find out that he'd seen a vision from God. You see, God was reaching out to them in his love and his goodness to say, I'm moving, pay attention. I'm invading the world again, pay attention. I'm acting, listen. Verse 24 and 25, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. God keeps the promise. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Though Elizabeth was rejected by the world around her, despised, looked down upon, yet God looked upon her with favor. And when he began to move, he took away her disgrace with his love and his grace and his mercy. And he's acted in such a way that there can be no doubt that it's God moving. And sometimes that's why God puts us through times of barrenness, of struggle, 
where relationships don't work out and you pray and pray and God never seems to move. It's because ultimately, He is going to display His works, His glory in you. That's His plan. That's His purpose in taking you through those difficult times. They're still painful, but we need to remember that your barrenness may be a sign, it is a sign ultimately, that God is working to bring glory to himself, that the works of God might be displayed in you. Ben Patterson describes all this this way, again in his book, Waiting. Take heart, you who wait. What God did for Abraham and Sarah and Zechariah and Elizabeth, he does for all who wait for him. He is for you, not against you. He feels your ache. He hears your groaning. And note, if he is silent now, as he was for so many years with Abraham and Sarah, it is the silence of his higher thoughts. He is up to something so big and so unimaginably good that your mind cannot contain it. What we see God doing is never as good as what we don't see. Whether God grants us our dreams or denies them, he does so only as part of his larger plan to save us for all eternity. The things you and I wait for, a child, a job, health, happiness, fulfillment, these are mere signs and shadows of the redemption that is to come. Zechariah had no idea what God was doing when he made him wait for so long. When he, as a faithful Jew, had waited for 430 years for God to move. I don't know what God's doing in your life in the ways he's making you wait. But I encourage you to cling to these truths we've talked about. The gospel is true. Put your faith on the historical truth of what Jesus has done for you living and dying and rising again for you. And then secondly, the truth that God is working out his plan in your life, no matter how it may look. He's faithful to his promise. He is seeking to use you to bring glory to himself. And as you cling to these truths, God will give you the asphalt to walk on as we walk through life. Let's pray. Lord, how we do struggle with our circumstances. How, like Zechariah, we have a hard time believing you. Help us, Lord, to cling to the truth in a way that would give us strength, that would cause our faith to be firm and solid as we walk through life so that you might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.